Welcome to season three of Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this first episode of season three, Pastor Preston Clegg speaks with Jennifer Verkamp Ruthven, Sophia Saeed, and Chris Ellis about the recent resettlement of Afghan refugees in central Arkansas. They'll be discussing hopes, challenges, and opportunities for these families and their sponsors. We hope this is an informative and inspirational episode. Welcome to Because It Is. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Because It Is, the podcast of Second Baptist Church. Uh, You haven't heard from us in a while, but we're excited to begin the fall season of our podcast. And we have an episode today that we believe will speak uh, to the depths of who you are as people, as listeners, uh, and also update you on what I would call very holy work that is taking place in central Arkansas in these days. Every Sunday, uh, Second Baptist Church worships a God who takes the agony and pain of the human experience and turns it into something like joy and hope and peace. Uh, God transforms human lives, and we as the people of God feel compelled to love and care and support vulnerable people in our midst. Uh, those beliefs transcend Christian traditions, and those, those beliefs actually transcend religious traditions. Um, many of you are familiar with what went on in Afghanistan just a few, uh, a few months ago, creating something of a humanitarian crisis in that country. And in our own country, we have been accepting Afghan refugees for the last few weeks and months some of whom have found their way into central Arkansas. And we are here today to inform you of some of the work that is happening in central Arkansas and what I believe to be a beautiful expression of the partnership of all the people of God in this humanitarian work. So to guide us in this conversation about uh, Afghan refugees, I'm excited to introduce you to some friends of mine. Uh, Sophia and Jennifer and Chris, we welcome you all to Because It Is. Uh, We're grateful for your presence with us in this podcast for certain, but even more so for your heartfelt work over the last few weeks in the care and support of Afghan refugees who've been entrusted to our care. Uh, So welcome to Because It Is, and uh, thanks for your partnership. Let's, Let's dive right in today. Um, what, what created the tragedy in Afghanistan a few months ago? What created the crisis for these families in Afghanistan a few months ago? Uh, what are they fleeing from? Uh, I guess let's just start at the beginning so that we all begin on the same page. Whosoever will. Um, I'm happy to start, although this is not uh, something that I'm very familiar with, because I don't watch news at home. I don't have a TV at home. Um, 
but I'll tell you this much um, specifically also because I come from Pakistan Afghans have faced um, 40 years of war within their country and this refugee crisis that we see today actually it's quite old it goes way beyond this year uh, the first Afghans started fleeing when in 1979 uh, Soviet Union invasion happened in Afghanistan and that was the first major wave of Afghan refugees out of Afghanistan and to the neighboring country I mean I don't remember it because I was only five years old but I remember growing up with seeing Afghan populations coming into Pakistan and Pakistan received almost 3.3 million refugees by the end of 1980 and then uh, this refugee crisis went up and down between 1979 and 89 till the Soviet um, war continued the Cold War continued and then from 1989 till 1996 till Taliban took over and made the first government in Afghanistan so refugees would flee out of Afghanistan and then they would come back into Afghanistan once the situation and uh, politics stabilized but anyways the current uh, crisis of course began after uh, the Taliban take over in August 2021 when US forces decided to leave and it caused tens and thousands of Afghans to flee often taking by desperate measures and primarily they're fleeing because a lot of them feel the risk of being targeted for their past work or association with coalition forces, uh, for their work with Afghanistan's former government, uh, for their work or connections with international development agencies, media, civil society, or other organizations who have been promoting human rights or uh, women empowerment, and also some who fear that they will, they will no longer be able to work in Afghanistan. So all of them have this uh, temptation and urgency to flee and currently there are hundreds and thousands at the borders of uh, Pakistan and Iran, both the countries that border Afghanistan. And then we also know there are thousands who have fled to Western countries and some of them are ending up here in the United States. So we saw the images uh, on the news, at least those of us who watched the news, Sophia, uh, we saw images of uh, pain and agony in Afghanistan, desperation. So in, in the interim weeks and months uh, until now, what have these refugees been doing in the interim? Where have they been? Uh, what have they experienced? Uh, what's been happening with them? I can say a couple of things and I hope Jennifer will speak more to that. So I do know that in some, um, if not most cases, the evacuees are um, taken to US or joint military bases in third countries. They are not immediately brought to uh, United States from Afghanistan and that helps for expedited airlift because if they are not coming directly to US and they can be taken to another country, that means they can be airlifted out of Afghanistan right away. And some of those countries are Qatar, Germany, Spain, Kuwait, and Italy. And then United States governments use those sites as processing hubs or processing stations where a lot of paperwork is completed, a lot of background checks, security checks, and um, uh, anti-terrorism screenings are completed 
I don't know. I have no idea how long do they stay there, but uh, that's what I know. Jennifer, you want to add to that? Um, I think you summed it up really well. I, and I think too, just to emphasize, because it's one of the bigger questions that we get is, um, you know, what does the processing look like? And um, while yes, this is an expedited situation, we have in the United States, the most secure system for processing um, refugees into our country than any other country in the world. And so um, I think that it's important to understand that um, at the different lily pads around the world and then the bases here in our country as well. They also have to go through certain healthcare screenings, um, receive a certain amount of vaccines to be able to um, then be placed in more of a permanent situation, which is where they end up with agencies like Catholic Charities um, in order to help them with resettling them into their new communities. I can speak to uh, our family, uh, Second Baptist family that we're sponsoring. Um, our family flew from Kabul to Qatar, Qatar to Germany, Germany to Texas, Texas to Albuquerque, and eventually Albuquerque to Little Rock. Uh, and along the way, um, they were uh, they were screened. Um, they were telling me about all the shots that they had gotten. Um, and then they came to Little Rock and they got even more shots. So um, I think the, um, the process was quite long. Um, it was the first flight for most of our family. Um, quite an experience going from uh, Afghanistan to the U.S. on your first um, first time ever in an airplane. But they, um, it's been a long process and I think it's tiring for them. But all in all, they, are, they feel very grateful to be here. Do any of you know on a national scale how many Afghan refugees we currently have in our entire country at the moment? I don't know in our entire country. From what I understand is that there's 58,000 that the United States um, would like to resettle. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's that's what I understand. I've also seen where you know, there's nine resettlement agencies in our country that are taking different cases um, from this pool of people. And last I heard, there was only, I think, 38,000 that actually had um, a place that there was capacity to be able to accept them. So the need is is very, very high. And um, I've also heard that the, the numbers can increase. Um, that's the latest that I've heard. If someone has heard something different more recently please let me know but that was in i think the last week or two so let's move more specific to central arkansas uh, how many families have we received in central arkansas uh, how many do we expect to receive and can you walk our listeners sort of through the process of receiving these families in central arkansas Sure, I can, I can explain the process. Um, so I'll kind of back up a little bit. As we were saying, you know, a lot of these, um, well, all of the Afghan refugees are on a base. Um, at this point, the ones that have come here were, in, were on a base in the United States. There's then nine resettlement agencies. Um, Catholic Charities of Arkansas is affiliated with the resettlement agency called USCCB or United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And then they have a department called MRS, Migration and Refugee Services. And they basically go through a database system 
of thousands of cases and they select which case they feel like could go to certain agents so certain agencies or certain affiliates or community partners of theirs across the country um so that's how we ended up with the families that we did they for whatever reason felt that these families could come to little rock and um so once that happens they actually send the the information what we call biodata in a spreadsheet um, by email and we have to look at it every day and see if there's any new families we then have 24 hours for catholic charities to say yes or no to a case um, most of the cases coming don't have what we call a u.s tie as in they're coming to the central arkansas area without any kind of connection with anyone here um, we have had a couple of cases that have what's called a U.S. tie, meaning that they have a friend or a family member that is here. When that happens, we're required to say yes to the case. But if they don't have a U.S. tie and we feel like we can't handle the case, we would say no. Uh, at this point, we haven't said no to any cases. Um, so, so far, we've had, we've had five cases come. Four of them are, are large families. Uh, Second Baptist has the largest at this point. <laughs> um, so if there's a competition for that, you all are winning for sure. And we're grateful to you all. Um, and then we have one case that is a U.S. tie that um, are actually a set of, of siblings. They're young adult siblings. And um, they are a little bit more outside of, of this area. And so, um, but they are within our Catholic Charities service area. And so they're a little bit different. And um, so, yeah, so that's kind of the process of how they get here. And and maybe Sophia might want to touch a little bit more on the sponsor teams who we greatly depend on, because I know she can also explain just as well as I can. Um, but once we, I'll, I'll say this much, once we accept a case, we then will select which sponsor team we feel like could handle this particular case for whatever reason, depending on capacity of the sponsor team, uh, depending on um, temporary housing and all of that. And um, each sponsor team comes from a different faith community. And um, so then from there, um, we tell them they're coming. Uh, we get their flight itinerary and the sponsor team picks them up. Um, and then they go from there. And um, Sophia or Chris, I don't know if you want to add to that at that point, because I feel like that's when you all really, really hit the ground running even more than what you already were doing <laughs> is when they actually arrive. Yeah, I would love to add to that. So as Jennifer said that uh, the State Department relies heavily on these nine resettlement, refugee resettlement agencies to accept these refugees. And then these nine or however many refugee resettlement agencies in turn rely heavily on community-based groups or faith-based organizations who would uh, pretty much like adopt a family each. And that's the same model or very similar model that works in almost every state in the United States. So what happened in Arkansas is, and I'll tell you my experience and then you all can speak to your experience. And uh, I, I specifically remember, and I yesterday went back to check my timeline on that, um, uh, Rebecca, um, who's Jennifer's colleague, Rebecca and Jennifer both are working on this from Catholic Charities. 
Rebecca calling me on August 24th and it was 7 p.m. when she called me and she told me about the project and she said that uh, we have um, limited capacity and we heavily rely on faith groups to adopt these families. So what can we do? And I, I said, I would love to reach out to all my contacts and see who all is willing to. So how much time we have? And I thought she'll tell me a couple of weeks till you get back to me. And Rebecca said, uh, Sophia, tomorrow at noon, we want to fill out our survey and send it to the United States Catholic Council of Bishops or whatever the organization is. And it was 7 p.m. I was flying out from New Jersey to Arkansas next morning and she gave me till 12. And I want to highlight it because it really speaks to the to the stepping up of the interfaith community anyways uh, i was busy at, during the evening but at midnight i sent out an email to uh, some of the churches the mosque the temple uh, forwarding them what catholic charities want to do and asking them to just step up and see if they would like to adopt a family which means taking care of their food and housing job employment just everything that they need and we'll speak more to that in a few minutes. And I went to bed at 12 after sending that email out. I get up at 6 a.m. in the morning and I already had at least 13 emails in my inbox and each one of them started like, Sophia, we are ready. Tell us what we need to do. Connect us with the right person. Where should we go from here? And it was so heartwarming. It was so heartwarming. So I started compiling the list and at 11.40 a.m. on Wednesday, it's not 24 hours yet, I sent the first list of seven congregations who committed to take a family each and a list of three interpreters who were committed to help these Afghans interpret and translate for them to Rebecca. Because she told me she has a meeting at 12 noon and she needs some information before that in order to move forward. And she said, otherwise we can't move forward. So at 11.40, we had that list. So it's incredible the way uh, the faith community stepped up to receive these families and host these families. So, and then more joined in. I know Chris reached out to Rebecca. We have Catholic churches, but as of now, we have nine teams who are adopting these nine families that uh, Jennifer just told that Catholic Charities is accepting. These nine teams are comprised of 11 congregations. So they're two congregations who are joining hands with each other. And they come from um, Catholic, non-Catholic, Methodist, Presbyterian, Muslim, Jewish backgrounds. And each one of them is fully committed and most of these families are large. And I'll give you example of one congregation here um, and, and um, Jennifer can speak more. So Congregation Bane Israel, which is a Jewish temple here in downtown, in Little Rock, they joined hand with Trinity Episcopal Cathedral, which is an Episcopal church, to adopt a Muslim Afghan family. And that is, I mean, that's music to my ears because all I do is interfaith work and what I hope, what my dream is that faith communities coming together to, um, find the common human element and work towards the larger common good and what could be more beautiful than a jewish and a christian congregation joining hands to adopt a muslim family and help them resettle in central arkansas our, uh, our 
<laughs> I'll just say our experience is very similar to Sophia's. Um, I so I didn't get an email from Sophia, but I hope I'll be on the next email, Sophia. Um, I got a, somebody else said, "Hey, I think Second Baptist. This is right up your alley." And I read it, and I was like, "Yes, this is right up our alley." And so uh, I emailed Jennifer, um, but I needed some formal authority before I did that. And so I emailed both our missions committee and our church finance committee. And within four hours, I had 17 unanimous or 19, sorry, my math is bad, 18 unanimous yeses and a commitment to spend up to $17,000 at the time. And so it was, it was the most, it was one of the easiest things that I had to get approved um, though it was easiest to get it approved, I knew it would be one of the most difficult things to actually pull off. Um, and the fact that these 18 people would say yes to something that was going to be very difficult um, was just very heartwarming for me and made me feel like it's it was the church being it's at its best when it was saying yes. And then there are other congregations who couldn't step up to take a family completely, but they said, we want to help. Can you please put us with another team? Uh, there are congregations who are in transition when it comes to their leadership. And they said, we can't take our family, but we have resources to share. So let us know where to send those resources. And I'll give you another example of Pulaski Heights United Methodist Church, who is not among our nine sponsor teams. Uh, because they have a lot of new staff and they're going through leadership changes. But they called me and they said, we can't adopt a family right now, but we have an apartment. It's a fully furnished apartment. Would you like to use that for one of the families? So help is coming in so many different ways from just all across central Arkansas. And uh, the faith community has really stepped up and stood behind the words that they preach. Yeah, it's been a beautiful thing. It's been, um, I keep saying it's one of the most uplifting experiences I've been a part of. We, um, my my inbox has never been so full <laughs> ever. And a lot of it is is random people wanting to help um, to the point of I, or to, to the extent that I finally had to find a point person at Catholic Charities to please respond to people wanting to help because it, I, I couldn't do it anymore. It was too, it was too much. And um that's been one of the most beautiful things. Not only have we had different faith communities that have stepped up, we've had several veterans, we've had different um, um, corporations, businesses, um, schools, um, you know, so many individuals, attorneys, people, you know, retired social workers, the list goes on and on of people that really want to do whatever it is that they can do um, to help these people out. And it's been a beautiful experience. Um, it, it I'm, I'm glad that you had a date, Sophia. You said, I think, August 24th, um, because it was probably a few days before that. And I'm with you. I don't really watch a lot of the news. Um, it's just, it's too sad. <laughs> and I, I knew a little bit about what was going on in Afghanistan, but I remember Rebecca texting me and saying, we might get an Afghan to resettle. And at this point, I was thinking maybe one family um, you know, our refugee program has been in existence with Catholic Charities since the 70s. Um, the biggest group that we've resettled are, um, was uh, Vietnamese groups and, and, the Cu and Cubans as well. But this was years ago and um, way before my time. And when I started working at Catholic Charities, I was serving more as the director of, of immigration services, which I still do. 
and then eventually took on refugees. But um, to be honest, our program was hanging on by a thread. Uh, there was no refugees or not hardly any that were coming in, but definitely none that were coming to our program. The last refugee that was resettled was about five or six years ago. And, um, you know, we, we figured that with the change in administration, um, president, presidential administration, that we would get to resettle some refugee um, this year, not necessarily from Afghanistan because nothing had happened there yet. And um, we never dreamed that it would be to this extent. Um, you know, we obviously it was a horrific thing that happened, but we never we never believed that on our side of things that we would have an experience like this this year. Um, and so it it has been um, overwhelming. Um, it's been beautiful. It's been really, really hard. But um, the most that I feel like I keep saying is that it's been so uplifting to see the interfaith community step up in the way they have and to see all of these different groups working together, um, really just to serve our new neighbors. Um, and so it's been it's been a wonderful experience. And it's a tribute to the interfaith community, not just in this moment, but the trust that's been formed for years, the cooperation that's been there for years. And so, uh, Sophia, I commend you and all the congregations and all the faith communities uh, across religious traditions that are saying yes to this to some degree without fully knowing what they're saying yes to in that moment. It is a beautiful thing to behold. Uh, so thanks, thanks for that ongoing work. Uh, if I heard you right, we have nine teams with nine families currently, uh, and that is made up of eleven different faith communities in the moment. So Am I right about that. We have we do have nine sponsor teams, but we don't have nine families here yet. Oh, okay. As of yeah, as of right now, we have five cases that are here. Okay. Um, but one of the cases is not with the sponsor team because they have what I was saying was a U.S. tie. And then we have four cases that are with four sponsor teams and we're waiting for more um, to come probably in the next month or so. And so our, our end goal is definitely to place a family, at least one family with each congregation. Um, in the meantime, we also have coming in in the next week or two three single cases that all have U.S. ties that we're not using sponsor teams for. Um, so it's kind of all over the place, but, um, but yeah, but we're, we're still waiting for the other cases to come with the sponsor teams. Okay. So let's go that direction. Where do you see this headed for central Arkansas? Is there a, is there a long-term goal? Is there a capacity? Uh, where do you see this headed? So when we first committed, um, we, we were kind of counseled by USCCB to say 49 was the amount of individuals that we would accept. Um, but as we're saying, we have nine sponsor teams. We knew the families would probably be large. Um, I guess I didn't realize how large they would be. And so, you know, let's, so as we're saying, four of the cases are with sponsor teams. And then there's the one other case. So that's, that's just a family of two. So at this point, out of four cases, that's 31 individuals. So we're, we're already over halfway with just the four cases to the 49 number. And um, Rebecca and I are very committed that we want each sponsor team to have at least one family. So I'm sure we're going to surpass the 49 number, 
Um, another thing that has happened is because the need is so great. Originally, the, the government had said that for this program that it would end at the end of March, but that's now been extended through the end of September. So we've already had USCCB come back to us asking if we can increase our capacity. And um, we have said yes, some of it's contingent on, on funding um, because of, as we've said, we would really, we, we would like to hire an interpreter because it's one of our biggest barriers. Um, so this one, I don't have an exact number, but I am certain it's gonna go past the 49 number easily. And, and as the number goes beyond 49, because the need is so huge, and we start receiving more families through Catholic Charities, some of these congregations who have formed the nine sponsor teams have agreed to take more than one family. So after they're finished with resettling their first family, and the family has moved into permanent housing and have found a job and have uh, become uh, to some to a lot of a large extent self-reliant they are willing to take another family and help them settle down so some of these teams will be receiving more than one family if the families come help us get a feel for the real life challenges that these families are facing as they resettle in central arkansas what what are the primary challenges ahead in the next few days and weeks for these refugees where to start? Um, Sophie and Chris, um, you all are more on the ground in the day-to-day -day with the family, so I can I can add to maybe whatever it is that you all might want to share first. Yeah, let's start. So let's start with the bigger challenges. Right now, most of all the families who come, they stay in temporary housing, which our goal is to move them out of within 30 days. So the immediate challenges that we have for them is to move them into a permanent housing, uh, enroll the children into schools. I hope, I, I'm not sure about every family, but based on what I know, none of the children speak English. So get them into ESL classes so their English gets to that level that they can go to, um, they can be in a class with their age mates, then find jobs for these um, refugees so they can start making some money very soon. So some of the financial burden is off from the sponsor teams. So the immediate things is their employment, their jobs, and then, then we have um, an education. And when we go beyond that, we have other challenges like, you know, their paperwork, their driver's licenses. And the largest challenges are, in my opinion, cultural challenges that I think um, uh, we, uh, Chris can speak uh, to some extent, and I would like to come back to that. Do you want to add to that, Chris? Yeah, I would just even fine tune a little bit, like even those challenges, housing has a 50 challenges, um, even in that one challenge. For example, you need housing, yes, but you need housing on a bus line because our friends aren't gonna be able to get driver's licenses. That narrows your, your pool of availability. Um, our family has 10, many land owners, uh, house homeowners don't want 10 people in their three or four bedroom house, narrows it even more. And then you wanna find a school district that uh, does a good job with kids doing ESL. So you're narrowing it down even more to where you really have very few options with regards to permanent housing, and it is, um, it's, it's hope and a prayer 
that something comes up um, that really meets the need. It's the same thing with jobs. It's not just any job. It's a job that will accept limited English. It's a job that they can get to on a bus line. It's um, it's a job that they that they can that they can actually accomplish. So there are challenges within challenges, and you feel like you get one hurdle, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's another hurdle right in front of me, and you've got to jump that one. Um, but the thing that has um, amazed me is I feel like God has been faithful through all of those challenges, and has been right with us as we seek to tackle them and do what's best for this family. Um, yeah, so those are just the logistical ones, but the cultural ones—that's a whole—that's a whole nother level that um, folks are, are, are that we're finding is is very different. Um, I've been fortunate enough; I've traveled to over twenty-five different countries. Um, I've been all over the world. I've been in Muslim majority countries, majority Muslim countries. I've been to uh, all over the place, and I'm used to going into cultures and having to kind of absorb. Um, their way of life, their way of being, um, and to try to as best I can as a white American mimic or blend in or at least do anything that's not so culturally offensive they don't want to talk to me, right? Um, but it's a whole different challenge when you're receiving folks from a different culture into American culture because I have to welcome them and be hospitable to them in American and in, in their Afghan culture. At the same time, I have to push and to nudge them to realize that for them to really exist and flourish in American society, they're going to have to be cross-cultural themselves. Um, and that is, and that was the unique thing that I had not really, um, uh, really owned or really processed. And as we're dealing with this family, it's you know, how do you um, how do you how do you help a family understand that. Uh, tea and uh, and a dinner before everything that you do, or a lunch or a snack before everything you do, is a beautiful thing. It just doesn't work really well in an American society that's fast paced that requires you to go from one thing to the next to the next. Um, uh, so it is taking these really beautiful parts of Afghan culture and trying to shape them and hone them to where they can. Um, effectively kind of survive and exist within American culture and yet still keep their Afghan identity. I believe uh, that these logistical challenges that uh, Chris just highlighted of job and housing and apartment, they will all fall in place. I think all of these families within six months, they all will have permanent housing and job and food and incomes. And, and that's why people come to America. America is called the land of opportunity for a reason. Everybody finds the opportunity to become self-independent. But the cultural acclimation is the one that takes the most time. And it's the biggest challenge, to be honest. Most of the Afghan communities in America reside in um, California and Northern Virginia, some in Seattle. So number one, Arkansas does not have a large Afghan, it does not have an Afghan community, not large. I was, after my intensive research for a month, I was able to find two Afghans. One of them was a PharmD student in Searcy and the other was a medical student in UMS. So both are here temporarily. There are no Afghans here. So a lot of them would like to be a part of their community which we don't have that means they need to build another community with other 
ethnicities with 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 americans with christian jews and muslims and i think that's extremely important because they if they don't develop social networks and if they don't have that social safety nets in the long term then they'll fall into isolation and that will be their long term biggest challenge to settle into america so one funny cultural experience i had was taking the family to grocery shopping and to purchase some clothes um, for the men last week. Uh, I thought I would get it done in three or four hours. Um, I had met the family on Sunday and I had texted them the night before. Please, uh, thank you so much for the food today. Please, no food necessary tomorrow. We have we have things that we need to get done. Um, I show up at nine and an hour and a half later, I am still sitting on the couch drinking tea and eating a meal. Um, and finally the family, we've, we've been around enough and the family said, okay, it's time to go. All right, so we go, we go to Walmart for, the, for their first time ever. And we walk up and down every single aisle trying to get a, trying for them to get a feel of how different things are here in the US in a grocery store. So that was a good experience. Uh, and then we took them, the men to Old Navy and we walk in and I realize I am way over my head I have not bought clothes for myself in the last eight years. Why in the world am I taking six people to purchase clothes? So I walk into Old Navy. I realize I need help. I call the manager over and she starts working with me to help find clothes for all the families, but they don't know their sizes. They don't know what fits. And so it was just this long kind of process of trying to figure out what would work for them. And then we take them to the, the shoe store and they had never had their feet measured. And so they had to have their feet measured, which was a unique experience for them. We go home um, and it's like at 3.30 and um, we're needing to unload the van and whatnot. And I tell the family, I'll, I'll see you later. Um, and they're like, no, no, you have to come in. I'm like, I, I can't go in, I, I have to go. I have something else I have to do. No, no, you you have to come in, I'm, I, I can't. And so it was like two minutes of, come, I can't, come, I can't, come, I can't. Uh, he wanted me to come in and have tea and they wanted to thank me and to honor me for spending time with them and for taking care of them. And he goes, two minutes, two minutes. Okay, okay, two minutes. And so he walks back in, he's in there. He comes back out with a Kroger bag full of homemade food that they had made, rice, goats, vegetables, and gave it all to me to take home to share with my family um, and gave me a hug and said he would see me later. Um, that's the kind of hospitality that just rarely exists here in the States. Um, and it is, a, it is quite a cultural shock for them to say that um, 11 a.m. doesn't really mean 11 a.m., but 11 a.m. means when we're ready to go. Whereas Americans are like, no, it starts at 11. We need to be there at 1055 and be on our way and having things accomplished. And so just that sense of time is so very different for our Afghan friends. So when you think about the breadth of these challenges for one single family, and then you think about welcoming new families into central Arkansas, are you needing more faith communities to step into a partner, into this partnership? Uh, if so, what would that look like? What, what would you like to see continuing from faith communities in Central Arkansas moving forward? I think in regards to the sponsor teams, at, at, at this point, you know, as, as uh, Sophia and Chris were just 
really well um, describing all of the challenges that we're experiencing. Um, it has taken a, a while. It's been, I would say, a pretty intense onboarding process for the sponsor teams and even for Catholic Charities as well to try to, to learn and prepare as much as we could before um, any families arrived. And then we're still continuing to do that. So I think at this point that on sponsor teams that we're, we're good. And as we've said too, because of how intense it's been and how hard all the congregations have worked, we're really committed to making sure that each sponsor team gets at least one family. And then we've had some, like Sophia had said, um, have committed to, to possibly receiving more. It is something that we've, Rebecca and I have discussed that if we do have another wave come in and some sponsor teams decide that that one was all that they have capacity for, which is totally understandable. Um, we do have a handful of congregations that have already that um, have reached out that we would consider maybe onboarding, but we're just not sure at this point, we're really not there. Um, we have been so swamped with what's going on that we're not at that point. Um, and, you know, we have had other congregations reach out wanting to help, which we're so grateful for. Um, at this point, I know that it's not as um, hands-on of an experience, but, um, and it's not, I, I don't know if there's as much well, there's definitely not as much involvement with this, but one of the things that we really are in need of from any congregation or any individual is monetary donations, to be honest. Um, you know, one of the, we were talking about challenges. One of the biggest challenges have been, has been communication. Um, and we have a list of volunteer interpreters, but most of them all work full time. And then a lot of the activities that go on during the day is during the normal work day. And um, so we're hoping to be able to hire an interpreter who also might be able to do some casework. And so um, that would be um, something really, really huge for us that we could definitely use help with. Um, and I think it would help us to, to take a step forward. That person would still be swamped, <laughs> but it would be better than, than where we're at right now. Um, <clears throat> Like Jennifer has said that we probably will not be forming new sponsor teams because it does take a lot of effort and training to get everybody on board at the same level. Uh, I totally agree we have enough sponsor teams, but I think there are three ways to help. Those people who can um, send financial monetary donations, um, uh, uh, Preston and Chris, you can direct them to one of these congregations or to Catholic charities so they can send their donations. Secondly, I think um, those people who do want to volunteer, there are places or there are there are uh, areas where sponsor teams can use their help. Pre-existing sponsor teams can use their help. For example, we might uh, some of the sponsor teams I know are looking for people who can help with ESL resources for the younger kids. We have a wonderful ESL teacher who's helping all 18 and above, but for younger kids, we can use more resources. So if we have uh, volunteers who are willing to help, they should reach out to one of these sponsor teams and see if there is room to help there. And there are a few places where they can help. Um, so sending donations, reaching out to the existing sponsor teams and asking them where they need more help. And thirdly, I think, which is, um, 
very important the most important is do not undermine the power of relationships and building relationships like i said the immediate challenges will be resolved but what remains in the end is isolation and inability to find a community that you can become a part of in the long term so what any congregation and all of them do is invite your family to to your halloween parade to your fall fest to your thanksgiving meal and continue to make an effort to uh, integrate these displaced afghans into the bonds of friendship and social networks because there is a lot of stigma i'm not a refugee i'm an immigrant but even being an immigrant i know there's a lot of stigma attached to being a refugee and sometimes they are actually treated as criminals especially the kids in the school the way they are um, bullied and uh, the people at jobs and they are not criminals these are the people who have been touched by war and they are traumatized so i think um, those people who really are eager to help in the long term they can help with offering friendships which will be much needed and longer than anything else one thing else that i would add as well is uh we need your networks um uh, for example we had a hard time finding a house i put it out to some friends and that was taken care of because i had a friend who had a house or who was willing to get a house to take care of it for us I need eight twin mattresses. You can't just go to Goodwill and buy used mattresses for the most part. And so I put it on a private Facebook group. Does anybody have any contacts at mattress stores? I got a text five minutes later that said, yeah, I know a family who owns a mattress store. And so really networks are a powerful thing that you can use to be able to help support these families, um, would be it finding a job, being at a place to stay, um, be it mattresses. So your networks are really, really important. Yes, I absolutely agree. We found a few homes for our family um, to move them into as a permanent residence, but I'm not going to approach to them till I find a good connection who can reach out to them and talk to them about taking eight individuals in one home. So anything that we're doing, actually we're looking for intermediary connections before we actually approach. So. No, I, I agree with Chris. Thank you for saying that. Very important. Yeah, I think those are all good points. And I think, too, um, to go back to what Sophia was saying about inviting people in and forming relationships. And I, I think even before that, too, um, there can be a lot of um, misconceptions out there. And I think even just taking the time to try to learn and to educate yourselves goes a really, really long way. Um, you know, maybe, maybe you're at you know, holidays are coming up and your uncle says something that is kind of rude and offensive about this population. Well, if you've taken the time to educate yourself, then you can, in a kind way, correct them. And I think that that can also help with, um, with welcoming, um, you know, our, our new, our new community members. Um, and also too, to add, and I think that this is important to emphasize and it's kind of the cliche thing to, to say, but um, the power of prayer is real and we definitely can use your prayers for sure. Um, first for the, for the Afghans, but for the sponsor teams for Catholic charities, um, you know, and I think that that, um, that's how really we've gotten to the point that we are is, is we've all relied, um, on the guidance of, of God to get to, to, to this point and we will continue to do so. And we need, we need your prayers as well. And I think that that, that would be a huge help. 
That's beautiful. Thanks to all of you for your, your wisdom and input today. So if anything that has been said has uh, pricked the heart of a listener today, um, you've heard several ways that you can partner. Uh, number one, financial contributions. This is long-term and ongoing work. Uh, in the show notes of this episode, we will uh, provide links to Catholic charities. You've heard uh, from Jen Jennifer today. That's sort of the umbrella organization that's been helping us in this work. Uh, you've heard from Sophie, Sophia and the Medina Institute. Uh, their cultural sensitivity to these refugees has been invaluable to us in this work. Uh, and to any of our own listeners, 2BC members, if you'd like to contribute to uh, our more specific work with our family, uh, we have a specific designated fund uh, for that task. So any financial contributions, we welcome to any of those organizations. Um, volunteer opportunities and certainly networks uh, that Chris mentioned, more specifically, any ESL help, uh, like Sophia mentioned, uh, would be welcome. And uh, just help us love these people well, uh, to be friends, neighbors, uh, and family uh, as we welcome them into Central Arkansas and help them open a new chapter uh, of their lives after a chapter that's been quite traumatic. Uh, to all three of you, we commend you for your work. Uh, we're proud partners with you and your institutions, uh, and we thank you for your blood, sweat, and tears, uh, and also for your time on the podcast today. So thank you very much. Um, we hope, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, you'll keep this work in your prayers. And um, in a day where so many people are uh, skeptical of faith communities. We all want you to know that there are people of faith trying our best to do good work in our midst on behalf of vulnerable people. Uh, so as you go, um, help us do this work and know that it is happening even in Central Arkansas. Peace be with you as you go. Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2bclr.com. That's the number 2bclr.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stilwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.